I have a few announcements that I want to get to really, really quickly. Uh, Good Friday at 6.30, please, please try to come to that service. Uh, we'd love to have you. It'll be different, right? It's, it's probably going to be uh, some really short kind of talks, sermonettes, scripture reading, uh, prayer, uh, confession, uh, and the Lord's Supper. So it'll be a, a, a low-key evening where we uh, really th- fix our hearts and minds on, on what happened on that fateful Friday. And then on Easter, it'll be a great opportunity to invite uh, your friends and family to come out to worship. People are often receptive to church invites. I'm glad to see you all here this morning. Like the week after and before big weeks are usually sparsely attended, especially with the rain. So uh, I'm glad that you're here. But please come out next week. Invite some folks out. Our liturgy will be a little different. We're just going to celebrate the whole time. There won't be a time of confession. Um, just, we're just going to celebrate Jesus and his resurrection and, and how incredible that is. And I can't wait to do that with, with all of you. Uh, last real quick announcement. If the rain slows down a little bit, we need some, some able-bodied folks to help us change the marquee for the last time. Uh, that marquee is sort of the ultimate evil. Uh, and so we don't change it for events or anything anymore. We're going to put Sundays at 11 a.m. in the middle. Because right now it says Resurrection Church. Resurrection Church. And I think they get the picture. So we're going to try to take advantage of some of the foot traffic we'll have for um, the Easter egg hunt Saturday, the downtown egg hunt where we have eggs all over downtown with prizes to local businesses that people will find and then bring in here uh, from, I don't remember what, 10 to 3 or something like that and reimburse those for their prizes. So I want to kind of capitalize on that and uh, get that changed. So if the rain lets up a little bit, um, everyone's now praying for it to keep raining. Um, we're going to try to change that. And if it's raining, we'll try to change it early this week. So uh, we appreciate your help. Uh, finally, in just a moment, I'm going to have uh, our core team from uh, Risen City Church come up. But before they do, I'm going to talk for about uh, five minutes uh, about church planting. One of our five distinctives at our church, one of the five things that we aspire to be about, is planting new churches from new believers. And I believe that even though we are a young church, even though in context we are a small church, the kind of church we are today is going to determine the kind of church we are generations from now. If we're not generous today, we won't be generous in 50 years. If we're not multiplying disciples and planting churches today, we won't be multiplying and pl- disciples and planting churches in 50 years. And so um, basically, a long story short, the Lord has given us this vision of church planting that looks a lot less like song and dance shows being started all over popular places and a lot more like loving and serving your neighbors. Because when you think about it, if you're a New Testament scholar in the room, you know Jesus never commands us to plant churches. There's never a command to go and start gatherings of people. Every church we see in the New Testament that's new, every church that we see that's birthed, is planted because there are new believers who are forming new gatherings. And how incredible would it be if church planting in the West, church planting in the United States, church planting in West Virginia did not look like better churches being started. Like we will lose that arms race every time, you know. We will lose the bigger, faster, stronger arms race. And so will all kinds of churches throughout Appalachia. What if instead of building bigger, faster, stronger churches, better music, better lights, better preachers, what if we said we see ourselves 
as missionaries in the everyday stuff of life. And where we go, the gospel goes. And as we share with the people in our lives, those people come to faith, and they're not in a church, and they need a church. And so we plant churches from the harvest. How incredible would that be? In fact, that's how we plant churches throughout the world. And so as a church, and part of my job as a pastor, a pastor theologian, right, is to help move us in the direction of what's biblical, not just what's pragmatic, what's beautiful, not just what will get the job done, if that makes sense. And I think there's something beautiful in small churches being born from new believers, but there are a few paradigms that exist on how to do this, and so that's one of the things that we are working through right now. I started fleshing this out in my mind while we were worshiping at Risen City, so uh, that wasn't even a year ago. It's hard to, to fathom. But our church had acquired a space on the west side, and we were worshiping there, and I started thinking through this vision of planting churches from the neighborhood, and I realized that we were kind of already a thing. At that point, we were about 60, 65, 70 people, and we were already our own thing, and so we're just inviting people into that. And I thought, what if we can scale back a little bit and sort of start fresh here? Love and serve our neighbors through programming, through meeting needs, through being present, through whatever it is. Share the good news of Jesus with them and eventually see a church planted in our West Side neighborhood. So in sort of this vision to tether the great commandment with the great commission, meaning the command to love God, love our neighbors, and make disciples, we have this sort of great commandment church planting, where we love God and love our neighbors, share the gospel and make disciples and plant a church. That church might not be featured on church planting network sites because it won't be big. It won't be the most attractive in the world. But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in real. I think five to seven new believers has a bigger impact on the kingdom of darkness than 200 transfers. Love God, love our neighbor, make disciples. Don't find our joy in the ministry, find our joy in the giver of the ministry. And trust him with the outcomes. And gather a church. Ultimately, church, my challenge to us this Palm Sunday is that we would learn how to do this with our team on the west side and Pastor Farmer, who we ordained some months ago. So unfortunately, every mistake we make, you will get the benefit of. But my joy is, my desire is that we would do this all over West Virginia, in small towns and in neighborhoods, that the good news of Jesus would be proclaimed. It would be demonstrated through everyday acts of love, service, and obedience disciples would be made and churches would be planted and that we would die and no one would know Resurrection Church did it all and then, well, Jesus did it all through Resurrection Church and then one day when we're a distant memory, there are thousands of new believers because a couple of you guys were faithful to the calling God gave you. Are we living for fame in this generation or are we living for God's glory in all generations? So now I invite uh, Risen City's core team to come up on the stage uh, those of you who are here, I know you love stages. I know you're really excited about coming up on the stage. But uh, some of them are here this morning, and I'm going to invite them to come on up. So at sort of whenever the core team is fully gathered, there's uh, about 20 of them. And so right now on Tuesdays, there is a, uh, 
a youth ministry that our church is also a part of, where we're inviting kids into that space, into those relationships. Uh, our core team has been meeting on Sunday nights. They've been going through a text called Apostolic Church Planting, which to me is the best text written in the United States uh, about church planting maybe ever. Uh, and so we're going through that, and we're, we're, we're working through our expectations. We're working through all those things, and they've been doing that uh, week in and week out, and they're already, you know, making jokes back here. And so um, I'm so thankful. And uh, Tommy and, and Megan Jenkins, Rosie was our first baby. So Rosie's already planted more churches <laughs> than, like, anybody I've ever met. So, so you know. Got little kids planting churches, which is, is awesome. So uh, let's pray for them. So let me have you all come up here. Just kind of gather around the pulpit just so it's in the middle. Nick and I will get behind you, and I'll put my, my hands on you, and, and, and Nick will put his on Farmer or Tommy. And then if you guys could be some Baptocostals for a second and sort of put your hands out towards the stage. If you're not a Christian, if you think that's hokey pokey, like, okay, it's, don't do it. You know what I mean? But if you're a believer and want to express tangibly with your hands that you're praying for them, would you just kind of put one of your hands out and towards the stage? And I'm going to pray for them. Um, and then after that, they'll be dismissed and we'll go on with the service. And so I want this morning to be a significant moment in our church's life, a significant moment in their life. Um, and I'll work through some of those details in, in, in the weeks to come. But for now, let's, let's pray for them and, and show them love. So, Father... Uh, we are so thankful for this team of people who are committed uh, to church planting. And not just church planting, but church planting that's like probably not going to make them notorious and famous throughout town. But their hearts to be servants. Lord, to, to set up chairs and invite people. And when those chairs don't get filled, they love the people that are there and pray for them, Lord. I pray that they'll never find their identity by how many people come to their services. I pray they'll never compromise in the sense of let's just do whatever it takes to get people through the doors. But I pray they'll commit themselves to the long, hard work of loving their neighbors as themselves. And that their love for you would propel them through disappointments, through heartbreak, through trials, through conflict, which is inevitable. That your spirit will push them through. That your spirit will work in and through every situation they encounter over these coming years. And I pray that birthed in one of the neighborhoods that is so dear to our hearts and, and my heart, Lord, that the gospel will continue to grow. Knowing that we are not the first and we are not the last to be in this neighborhood. Help us partner with other kingdom-minded churches to love and serve everybody. No matter who they are, what they look like, how much money they make, how much education they have, what they struggle with, but that they will be people in our that there will be people in our neighborhood who, through these ministries, will know that they are created by God, they are loved by God, and they have honor not because of what anything anyone says about them, but because God created them in His image, and that the way back to life in Him is through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus the Christ. Fill them with your spirit. Give them a special anointing this morning for the work that lies ahead. Help them see themselves as missionary church members as we ought to, not simply consumers. Pray for Farmer and their marriage, he and Lauren, that you'll protect them. You'll guide them through the days ahead. And I pray that you will continue to develop a family of churches who are pushing back darkness right there in the obscurity of everyday life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Amen. Give it up for these guys and appreciation. And you may now go down the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I'm so excited about that, guys. Um, this is what my, I feel like that's, oh, Rez, good y'all can go now. I want you to see that and be a part of that. Um, uh, it's bigger than us, man. It's bigger than us. Speaking of it's bigger than us, I'm going to India, and I'd like some of you to join me. Uh, I have a few people interested, so I'm kind of courting them a little bit, uh, and we'll see what happens. I'm really excited about that. Um, marquee change. Finally, I'm just going to introduce this, and we're going to pick it up next week, and I'm going to preach a short sermon because this was worth a lot of our time. Um, to sort of come alongside our missions trips in the fall, uh, our health team has proposed this idea that they're going to walk to Prague. And what we mean by walking to Prague is that as, as they're exercising and encouraging you to join me, I've been going to the gym every night, I, you can tell. I mean, I look incredible um, at around 11 o'clock. So if you go to the wire around 11 o'clock, we can walk together. <laughs> um, um, and so walking to Prague. And so what that means is it's just like we're going to commit to working out and walking. And every mile we're going to record that. And we hope to get all the way up to how many miles it is to frog. And they've got that all figured out. And so uh, it's just a way to pray and, and synthesize our spiritual labor with our physical work. So uh, more details on that as we go. All right, let's get to John chapter 12. Now, John chapter 12 is John's telling of uh, the triumphal entry, what we celebrate annually at Palm Sunday. And so we didn't read this. I'm not going to read the traditional text. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they take palm branches, and they go out, and they sing, Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And there's this moment of triumph as Jesus is coming to town, fulfilling these messianic prophecies, the biggest of which we read as our morning reading. Jesus rides into town on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, to the acclaim of great multitudes, making good on those prophecies. And John, in his gospel, includes our sermon text today. And none of the other gospels include that. So if we look up at verse 18 in your Bibles, uh, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign, which is raising Lazarus from the dead, which he did later in his ministry. And then verse 19 and so I love this. So John's gospel, when you're reading John's gospel, it's the most sort of editorialized. Not in the sense that it's changed, but in the sense that it's written sometime later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So when you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially Mark, you get sort of a this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And when you're reading John, it's this happened, and then John sort of tells us what its significance is. John is the youngest of the disciples, and so his letter uh, came last. And so John will often interject and include things, and they're just beautiful. And I love verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, so you've got the crowds rejoicing over here, and then you can kind of picture sort of your religious leaders and rulers off to the side, kind of with their arms crossed, folded, mumbling to one another. You see that you're gaining nothing, the Pharisees say. We can't, we're not stopping this guy. <laughs> Look at this. Look at these people all cheering for him and worshiping him and putting robes on the ground and waving palm branches. We're gaining nothing. Look, the Pharisees say, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after They have no idea that that sentence is just so packed with meaning that, that in fact, yes, the whole world has now gone after him. Christianity will go to 
the nations. Look, the world has gone after him. And now contrasted with these Pharisees are the Greeks, who we meet early in our text, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. They may have been uh, Greek converts to Judaism. They may have been sort of friendly to Judaism, meaning they, they believed the morality was good and helpful, uh, but they wouldn't, you know, self-identify as Jewish. Uh, they would be Hellenistic people, Greek speakers, sort of perhaps uh, living in more of a Greek context. We don't have a lot of details but we know they came to Philip, a Greek name, maybe they felt comfortable there, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so Philip is a good Baptist that didn't go to Jesus. He went to Andrew. <laughs> Philip told Andrew, yeah, they want Jesus. So then Andrew and Philip together went to get Jesus. Now, I, I think in verses 23 to 26 are sort of one part of our text. So if you're taking notes, that's the first part. We'll call that the commands of Jesus and then verses 27 to 36, we'll call that the, the calling of Jesus. And sort of through that command and, and through that calling, I think we'll see three things. One, that Jesus will be lifted up in humiliation. He will call all people to himself in glorification. And we will follow him and be where he is for salvation. Jesus will be lifted up he will call all people to himself. We will follow him and be where he is. So Jesus is addressing these, these Greeks. He's addressing his disciples. And he's addressing everyone that has sort of come along on this journey uh, with them. It's sort of a broad uh, statement to, a, uh, to this inquiry. Verse 23 is sort of the topic sentence for the whole discourse. Right? Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this sort of topic sentence is going to um, sort of work itself out through the rest of the text. If you're familiar with John's gospel, over and over and over again, Jesus will say, my time has not yet come. 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 And now when the Greeks approach him, he makes this proclamation that the time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The moment for which Jesus wrapped himself in flesh and came to earth has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, but that glorification will actually look like humiliation. That glorification will actually involve death. Look with me in verses 24 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Kind of perplexing, but not really. A, a seed is just a seed. Like if you take a seed and you just hold it in your hand, like it's never going to turn into a pumpkin. It's just going to be this self-enclosed seed. And the, the coating, whatever it's called, that covers the seed is just going to keep the life, the vitality inside of that seed. So a seed in itself is just a seed. But when a seed is planted into the ground and that seed breaks open, what begins to happen? 
Like life begins to come from that seed. Like vitality begins to come. And so all of a sudden that which was just a seed in its breaking, and we don't think of it as the seed dying, but really the seed is no longer a seed. It's dead. It's gone. Its seediness is no longer there, philosophically speaking. So it's dead to itself, but it's in that dying to what it is, in that dying to itself, that life comes. And Jesus is like a seed, right? He will die, he'll be buried, put in the ground. And from that ground would come life for the nations. Jesus here is teaching us, though, that this is a kingdom principle. This is how life is in God's economy. You live by dying. This is not just the fate of Jesus, but this is the fate of all of his disciples. We find our lives by losing our lives. We come to life by dying to ourselves. Jesus goes on teaching, if you love your life, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life will keep it for eternal life. Before we go any further, if you're struggling or suffering here this morning, this is really good news for you, that the path for a better tomorrow is not a better life today, it's obedience to Jesus today. And your circumstances do not determine your obedience to Jesus. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever's got it made, they got everything they want. Their house is perfect, their family is perfect, their job is perfect. Their mental health is awesome. Their emotional health is even better. Their physical health is even better than that. They're so much better than you. They go to so many, so many cooler places than you. They have so much more stuff. Everyone likes them so much more than you. Their social media is just incredible. Everyone likes everything they post. They're just awesome, and they have this perfect life, and they love it. But the reality for that person is they will lose it. If you hate your life... You'll keep it. Does Jesus mean that we should go around bummed out all the time? No, right? We interpret the teachings of the Bible with what? The teachings of the Bible. And so we know that, that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. That what Jesus is teaching here is the same thing he says when you have to like hate your parents and hate your, that you have to, in comparison to your love for Christ, everything else is meaningless. That you are about... Jesus and his kingdom. And so in comparison to how much you love him, everything else is just sort of meaningless. And one of the reasons we try to explain this stuff away is because we don't do it. What if the Bible means what it says? What if we're called to love Jesus more than the stuff in our lives? What if we're called to love Jesus not just more than the stuff in our lives, but than our very lives? If you love your life in this world, you'll lose it. If you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it. Then we see two conditional statements that follow. If anyone serves me, and he's going to repeat that twice. If anyone serves me, then he's going to say again, if anyone serves me. If anyone serves me, then you must follow me and be where I am. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. So the first condition, Jesus is saying, both to the Greeks and to all those listening, if anyone will serve me, 
if you want to know what I'm about, if you want to know why I'm here, and if you want to participate in that, you have to follow me. And you have to be where I am. That sounds great on Palm Sunday. <laughs> because on Palm Sunday, Jesus is the man. Like all these people are cheering him. And most Palm Sunday sermons that you hear, it, it, the whole thrust of the sermon, because it's really easy to preach, so we like to preach it, right? It's the same people who cheered him on Friday were jeering him on Sunday, right? And, and that might be true, but the same people who cheered him on Friday, some of them might have been jeering him on Sunday, but I think most of them were hidden in their house hoping that Rome didn't come for them next. But the point remains that on Sunday, everything is cool. Like the, like the Pharisees are defeated. They're like, look, we're, we're accomplishing nothing. The whole world's gone after him. We're losing this battle against Jesus and his followers. And maybe he is something special. Maybe he is this great teacher. And so the Greeks and people who might be interested might be saying, well, if, if this is what life is, I'm all about it, you know? If life is taking part in this cool guy parade, I love that. So I'm going to go find me a cool guy, and I'm going to follow him. And I think we do the same thing in our lives. Like, as long as Jesus is the pathway to what I really want, I'm all about it. Like, if Jesus is the pathway to people thinking I'm cool, I'm in. If Jesus is the pathway to a paycheck, I'm in. If Jesus is the pathway to getting all my hopes and dreams met, I'm in. But Jesus is teaching that Though that's what you might see right now, that's not what this is about. Because Jesus is going somewhere and he's saying, where I go, you're coming with me and you're going to be there with me. I think of Jesus' other statement where he says, if anyone will follow me, you must what? You must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Following Jesus is walking in that triumphant procession, knowing that triumphant procession leads to a cross. If anyone serves me, he must take up his cross. He must be where I am. He must be among the poor. He must be among the least of these. He must be among the tax collectors and sinners. If our gospel is not attractive to them, then there's not something wrong with our gospel. There's something wrong with us. If anyone serves me, then you must follow me and be where I am. This first conditional statement contains a command. If, then do this. The second conditional command contains a promise. The last part of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. What does this mean? I don't know exactly how it works out, but I know this, that you're taking your results and you're taking them out of your clutched hands and you're giving them to the Father and you're trusting that if you're obedient to King Jesus, if you go where he goes and do what he does and become like who he is, that God the Father will honor you. And though I don't know exactly how this works out, I know that the honor of God is better than the honor of man. And I know his plans are better than my plans and his rewards are so much better than the rewards anyone in the world can offer. I know then that it will be worth it. So if we see the commands of Jesus there, I think in verses 27 to 36 we see the call of Jesus. Look with me in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. 
we can hear sort of whispers of Gethsemane here. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. His soul is troubled in the midst of triumphant praise because Jesus knows why he's come to town. And he's, he's asking rhetorically, shall I pray to be rescued from this? And he says, no, 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 because this is, this is why I came. This is the whole point of all of it. He said, I might die and through my death would come life. And so his prayer is, Father, glorify yourself. And then 28 and 29 includes John telling us what happens around them, right? Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. In their carnal physical ears, they couldn't hear, but when they look back through the lens of the resurrection and cross, they know exactly what was said. Jesus answered, explaining this voice that everyone has just heard. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to my Self. They're confused. Wait, wait, hold on. Like, we've read in the law exactly what they read. We're not sure. I think it's more of an implication, right? It's more like if you would just read through the Old Testament without a New Testament or knowing that it even existed, you would assume, you would hear of like a judgment day, a final judgment. You would hear of like one who is coming. You would get those notes, and they would be kind of varied throughout the text. And so you might not, like, know exactly what it's going to look like. I almost think about, like, the eschaton, like, the end times. Like, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but we know it's going to happen, and we know generally what it looks like. I kind of think that's how a Jew in the first century, or anyone familiar with the law, might have felt about the Messiah's coming. The specifics, we have our own ideas, our own camps, our own parties. But we know he's coming. And what we all agree on is that it does not make sense that the Davidic king would come and die. Like, how are you going to save us from Rome? How are you going to save us from our enemies if you, you come and die? And so I think w when they're pushing back here, they're saying, we've heard, in verse 34, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, that the Messiah remains forever. How, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Is it even you? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answers them with a better answer to a question they weren't really asking, but really the question they needed to be asking. And sometimes Jesus redirects our questions instead, instead of giving us the answer we think that we need because he knows what we really need. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Uh, I was at seminary uh, this weekend uh, for my final semester, so I'll be a pastor when I graduate. Um, it's kind of a joke, but no one really laughs. Uh, uh, and we were talking about the prevailing sort of metaphor for the life of faith through the Bible is walking. Like when you read through the Psalms and Proverbs, like wise is the one who walks in the name, like walks, walks, walks. And, and Jesus' followers in their earliest days, they weren't called Christians. What were they called? 
Followers of what? The way. The way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And early Christian writers, like in in the city of God, St. Augustine, he talks about those who are walking in the path of man and those who are walking in the path of God. This idea of walking is, you could argue, is the central metaphor for the life of faith throughout the Bible. Jesus is telling them that the light is among you a little bit longer. Um, So walk in the light while it's here. Walk in the light while you can. Hear these truths and believe these truths while you have an opportunity. Let's look back at what Jesus said that puzzled them so much. Verse 30, the voice that you've just heard came for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It's clear that they thought immediately that he's talking about his death, and and he is. Jesus is teaching us a few things. He's teaching that the world will be judged and the ruler of the world will be judged. Isn't God the ruler of the world? Yeah, he is, but, but Satan has some, some temporary dominion over that space. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, who's, who's blinding our eyes and, and, and hardening our hearts through sin so that we don't see God as who he is, so that we don't understand the message of the gospel. Jesus is saying, now the time has come to judge the world and to cast out the ruler of the world. Jesus is saying, I have come and now I'm going to judge sin. I'm going to bring final justice through judging all sin. And I'm not only going to judge the sin, but I am going to depose the king of the world, right? I am going to take Satan and remove him from his power because I am taking my rightful place back as the one who rules the everyday stuff of our lives. The world will be judged. The ruler will be punished. And in this judgment of sin, in this punishment of Satan, will be the salvation of the world. And when I'm lifted up, broken and bloody and bruised and scarred and torn virtually to pieces, I will call all people to myself. All people might not mean every single person, but all types of people. And if you're here and you're a person, I think Jesus is talking about you. That when he was lifted up, he would call all people to himself. This is his calling. This is why he's come to earth. To glorify the Father by seeking and saving the lost, bringing justice to the world and destroying the power of sin. Worship team, if you guys want to come on up. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, what does Jesus tell the original crowd to do with that? He says, walk in the light. Believe the light. Because one day I'm not going to be here any longer. Now, we also know that even though Jesus isn't going to be here much longer, he says something similar to his disciples a little bit later in the week, right? He says, I'm not going to be with you much longer. But my leaving is actually good for you. My leaving is actually to your benefit because when I go, I'm going to send who? I'm going to send the helper. 
I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And instead of me standing beside you teaching you these things, he is going to come and he's going to dwell inside you. And he's going to bring this to life in you. The law that's written on stone that we'll get back to in Exodus in a couple of weeks, he's going to take that law and he's going to write it on your heart. He's going to open your eyes. He's going to soften your heart. He's going to ensure that the gospel message that goes from your lips will go to the nations and will not return void. He will be with you. And we know that one day Jesus will return again. Paul teaches the Corinthians, and we're not going to go there because there's too much time and it's 12.06 already. But however sure you are that Jesus was resurrected is how sure you should be that he will come again. So, like, if you don't believe he's resurrected, then, like, you don't believe any of this. And that's fine, but, like, be honest with yourself. I don't believe any of this, right? I want you to believe this. I think it's the true story of the whole world. God wants you to believe this because it is the true story of the whole world. But if you do believe that what we're celebrating next week is just not ancient mythology. If you do believe that a real person died on a cross outside the city gates and that that person's body has never been found because that person is not dead. If you believe that, then you should be equally sure that one day the eastern skies are going to explode, King Jesus will reign, Satan will be cast out where he belongs forevermore, all sin will be judged, justice will reign, the Lord will be ours, we will be his, and peace will return. So if I believe that's coming, that puts some temporal perspective on this, that God who created time will one day end time. And the charge is the same. While we have the light, this time we're not talking about Jesus, though he's in heaven and alive and aware of all of us. We're talking about the spirit who lives among us. While he's here, while the Lord tarries, if you will, believe in the light. Believe in the message of the Son. Believe that through his broken body and shed blood has come judgment of sin and salvation for sinners. Having considered this text through the commands of Jesus and the calling of Jesus, let's land the plane where we started. Jesus will be lifted up on Good Friday in humiliation. He will call all people to himself in glorification. And we will follow him wherever he leads us to do whatever he calls and be where he is. I think that most of us Christians, and this, we talked about this in my class, so it's fresh on my mind. My professor said, so you don't have to get mad at me, right? My professor said, evangelicals know a lot about what to do, but they really are clueless about how to be, how to live the spirit-filled life, how to have joy and peace that's not circumstantial, how to genuinely love. Where do you learn that? I think you learn that when you live where Jesus is. I think you learn about the cruciform life. The title of the Good Friday message is The Cruciform Life. 
And what we mean by cruciform is cross-shaped. God calls us to what? Love him. And we think about that vertically, right? And he calls us to love our neighbors. And we think about that sort of horizontally. And when you take that vertical and you, you take that horizontal and you put them together, what do you, what do you get, right? You get a, a, a cross, a, a cruciform. And theologians argue that that's the shape of our lives, that even the shape of the Christian life points to the triumph of Jesus. Jesus will be lifted up on Good Friday. Why do we call it good? Because he'll call all people back to himself. He'll reverse the curse from the fall. He'll destroy sin and all evil. At the cross, hope reigns. And we never quite leave the cross. In fact, our lives are to be a symbol of the cross where we love God and love our neighbors. And we pick that up every single day. So what does it mean to pick up our cross? I think we can start by thinking about loving God and loving our neighbors, living a cross-shaped life. Jesus will be lifted up. He will call people to himself. He will follow him and be where he is. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The son of David, the son of man, the son of God has come. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you for your word, which has been preserved for us through the generations. Thank you for the light of the Holy Spirit who is among us, who empowers us to love like you, to live like you, to lay down our dreams, our hopes, our aspirations, and pick up our cross. What do you want to be? What do you want to have? I don't know. How can I love God? But what do you want to happen? What do you want to do when you're older? How much, what job do you want next? What degree do you want? I don't know. I want to love my neighbor. Father, through the power of your spirit, empower us to pick up our cross, to live a cross-shaped life, and be yours, trusting that if no one knows our name, if no one remembers me as a pastor, if no one remembers any of our members for anything they do, if your name is made known through dying, we win. Father, we love you. Through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, to the triune God, we pray. Amen. Please rise and let's sing a final song.